You didn't do the, the double clap the last time uh, at the beginning of the podcast. Maybe it'll rise again. Here we go. Welcome to TGE, the podcast. Today, we're going to talk about a very special film. At least it's very special to me, Whiplash, and the editing of the Not My Tempo scene. And with me is Tyler. Tyler, how are you? Good, Sven. How are you doing, Sven Papa, host of the podcast? This guy edits. If you enjoy what you're hearing, please take a moment to subscribe through iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher, wherever you are listening to us. It is much appreciated. We also appreciate the spreading of the word, telling your filmmaking friends about the podcast, to giving us suggestions for what scenes to look at, because it's really the best for us when we get to interact with the community and get feedback and see what you're interested in because it's often what we're interested in absolutely <laughs> it was good seeing you last night sven it was great yeah it was nice to hang out um where did we go tyler we went to the ace hotel for hollywood foreign press association event about film preservation hosted by the director of the Cannes film festival terry Frameau, alexander payne ucla alumni which i bring up because the ucla film archive was mentioned heavily the importance of it the value of it by the other guests there uh, <laughs> so bad i don't know their names the the archivists the preservationists We're talking about the importance of that so it was really cool to get to see and then it was followed by a screening of the good the bad oh a screening of, I want to say Yojimbo, a uh, screening of, of Fistful of Dollars. Yeah. Yes, the the remake of Yojimbo, which is interesting because we're going to be talking about Seven Samurai in an upcoming podcast. Yeah, which the same director, Akira yes. Kurosawa. Ah. Indeed. Um, and uh, <laughs> Sorry. I mean, we, anyways, we just watched this whole thing about film restoration and preservation. And, you know, a lot of it's interesting information. We got to see some really cool clips of Lumiere Brothers films I had not seen before that oh, had yeah. been found and restored. And then just filled with a growing sense of anxiety about the state of my well-backed-up hard drives. But at the end of the day, they, are all our, they all are hard drives. And it just... Even VHS, it's like 400 bucks to get a VHS player now if you don't have one. It's amazing how if you haven't stored your media with the device to read it, how that can just vanish into history. And yeah. we heard Alexander Payne talk about how he his first film he is technically missing because the two prints he had made as part of his contract both had audio issues just because of the way prints are being made at the time. So he has to find the materials to make a new print of his first film, Citizen Ruth. So I'm like, geez, <laughs> you know, I feel like I've been making films since around that time. I'm not at that level, but just short films and stuff. I'm like, what chance do those have? I'm, I'm terrified to look. Yeah, it definitely made me want to dig up those boxes. I have some VHS copies of my old student films, and I need to start digitizing them. And that's the only really, the only existing quality of that. My main student film, the one that's the thesis film, is actually on a 17 millimeter, or super 17 even, spool. Wow. But even that, I think I need to start digitizing as well, because that stuff is going to go eventually. Super 16. Ah, So this would just like to be our This Guy Edits friendly reminder to back your footage up always when you're shooting, obviously. But then, you know, look into the preservation of it. How will it be stored? And as always, ironically, you know, film's the best way to store things long term but that you may not have that luxury available to you. It was really cool to go to downtown, which, uh, if you're not from L.A., is a place that's kind of dead to everybody, at least like back then when I first started um, moving to L.A. and going to film school. I was never hanging out in downtown. There was just nothing going on. There's a little bit of financial district and then a bunch of homeless people and other districts but nothing really that mattered in terms of young people going out and so on but nowadays and then your rival usc of course <laughs> but now it's it's starting to change i could really sense like i walked out of the theater at around 11 at night and i felt safe which usually i didn't in downtown <laughs> and there were like just people hanging out and going to cafes and into clubs that weren't there before so it's, it's starting to change that was nice to see and even that theater i've never been to that theater at the ace hotel which is the former united artists the original theater um on what was it on ninth street and something like that yeah 
just an amer an amazing like what did they call it gothic meets i don't know colonial style or spanish style yeah. something like that not spanish yeah definitely gothic um and just really a bizarre theater i thought i was in a batman movie to a certain degree <laughs> it was really cool oh and of course jane fonda was there as well right on the panel she's like an advocate of film preservation no now. she's not <laughs> oh now right now so the other ironic thing is that oh I wasn't serious oh yeah and then it, yeah and there was like a really nice introduction and i've been to a, several events at the uh, ace hotel as i'm sure a lot of the listeners have and the cool thing with this one that was different was there was a just because the whole the whole theme of preservation et cetera et cetera was that there was a, a gentleman giving the history of the hotel to the audience waiting in the lobby from a microphone and it was kind of cool to hear about how you know what the original intentions were how it has remained et cetera et cetera which was very cool yeah it didn't it was it, apparently mary pickford chose a really bad location for it so it never became like a hot spot for people to see films although a lot of premieres took place there yeah and it's also a sign that sven is a true of the cloth editor that he's missed like the last 15 years of downtown la's growth because <laughs> he's been in he's been in the bay that's how you always know yeah no i mean i've been to downtown more in the last two years than i've been in the rest of my time here in LA, which is more than 20 years. So I, I can see that it's, that more stuff is happening there. Yeah, and it goes to show it's a scene for that stuff. Yeah. And There's another theater, I think it's called The Independent or something. Have you been to that one in downtown? Just like, downtown Independent? Yeah. Yeah, I had a premiere there that I think you were at. Oh, that's right. Oh. That's, that's, <laughs> that's how that happened. That's an amazing place. Yeah. To have a, to have a premiere. But even then it was, uh, yeah, it was interesting because we were like trying to find an after party spot and, you know, you have to have a machete to kind of fight your way through yeah. the downtown of it. Uh, anyhow, so speaking of uh, independent. Yes. I don't know. What are we speaking <laughs> of? Speaking of segues. Well, this is it? an independent film we're talking about, right? It started yes. off as a short um, by Damien Chazelle, who's the director. And then it got mm -hmm. turned into a feature. And mm -hmm. had a very low budget, 3.3 million, and didn't have a distributor, got into Sundance, was the opening film at Sundance, and then was picked up by Sony. And ended up hmm. making more than 49 million uh, gross. Hmm. And uh, got a couple of Oscar nominations, including yeah, and Best one of Editing. Them being now, and then that's interesting to me, because we've been talking about on this podcast... The last couple of weeks, we've been looking at this week, this year's winner for best editing and talking about, well, how, you know, how do you, and a lot of uh, listeners have rightfully had the questions of, well, how do you even measure that? How do you even know what's what, if it's good, et cetera, et cetera. And it's a very hard thing to tell, but I think that this is, it was definitely one of the cases of a movie that... I think the editing, there was a very specific, it was very noticeable in in the way that it enhanced the film. So I think it was, you know, an example of a, a good, it's just a good example to look at something like this. And I, I'm sitting here trying to bring up the other nominees that year. Oh, no, here it is. Okay, so the other nominees that year were The Imitation Game, American Sniper, Boyhood, Grand Budapest Hotel, and American Sniper, which I said twice, but had two editors on it. Yeah, it doesn't seem like the other films necessarily stand out as really well-edited films. Well, I mean, they're well-edited. They're well-edited, but... Innovatively I, I edited. Yeah, I feel like Whiplash might be arguably the best, most important film in terms of editing in the past 10 years, is how I like to present it in class when I teach teach that scene in particular um, mm -hmm. and I could be wrong but to me it feels like it's such a great scene to talk about one of the most important parts of editing that is often overlooked and it has to do with rhythm and pace and since the film itself is about a drama it kind of makes sense that the editing does reflect what's going on in the film in terms of playing music and drumming and finding the beat being on time that kind of stuff um, that it lends itself to to use the editing to bring those points home. I don't know. what did, mm -hmm. You just, you recently saw the film. What was your impression <laughs> overall of the film? Well, Sven's, Sven's trying to cover for me. So 
I've been teaching editing, obviously, for over a decade. This was a, a highly well-regarded film, not only in terms of what you can learn from editing, but what you can learn about teaching and being a teacher from watching it. Right. Um, I'm joking, but the... Did we say we're talking about Whiplash? Anyways. Yeah, we did at the <laughs> beginning of the episode. That's my new thing. Okay, I actually introduced the film at the oh, top. Oh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, I mean, just for a long... And, like, students would chide me for it. And it, it became ridiculous that just for... It, and every once in a while, there's that movie that just eludes me. And for some reason, I'd never seen it, never caught it. And so then... And I saw Sven's doing a video about it and was like, all right, I'm going to have to do it. And we had a whole thing set to kind of do a recently Academy Award winning film and the film or the style that inspired it, which we're going to do in the coming weeks with uh, Seven Samurai and Hacksaw Ridge. But, you know, so, so Sven wanted to do this for the podcast. And I was like, all right, there's my excuse to see it. So I did. And yeah, I enjoyed, I enjoyed watching a uh, feature-length student film for... The evening which it is great. great now you made me watch a couple of films i made you watch a film it's kind of that's what i love about this podcast anyway hopefully for the listener as well it's like filling in the gaps if we're talking about yeah. the seven samurai i really haven't seen that film since my time at afi when i was in my 20s and mm -hmm. so to see it now after being an editor for so many years it's like i have a whole different take on the film which is great yeah to be able to take time out of your busy schedule and just pick a couple of classic movies and revisit them or see them for mm -hmm. the first time. And it really like just, it broadens your mind. And that's what I felt with Seven Samurai. Well, it, I think that was a big theme also of the preservation panel we were at was the experience of the cinema. And though they didn't talk about this, obviously Terry Fermo has a, a very specific relationship with Netflix, right, which I completely understand. Mm -hmm. And it kind of relates to Spielberg's, which is like, I think very simple. Like we, the theatrical experience is a very specific thing. And that's not even directing it specifically at Netflix, but movies that, you know, just give a movie a theatrical release and it could be nominated for theatrical awards. It's it's that simple. This time that I'm filling with watching Seven Samurai or Whiplash, it's something would have been binged, you know, that was possibly far less fulfilling in its right. place. Yeah. So what is there to lose? I've been hunting around Canopy a lot. That's become my new go-to. What's that? Oh, it's just like a great uh, site full of, it's an educational resource where a lot of, you know, classic films, uh, important contemporary films and documentary films are... It's kind of like a Wikipedia of that or it actually has the No, films? no, you, it's a, you, can, you can get an account and you can watch it, especially if you're, you know, like I have obviously uh, with my teaching at UCLA Extension, I have a relationship I with see. the college. So it's kind so of like Filmstruck? It's like Filmstruck, yeah. Gotcha. That's, that's the hole that it fills for me. Nice. But anyways, so it was great. And I knew when Sven was saying, you know, I knew that I had no excuse looking into his eyes in the, in the gothic lighting of the Ace Hotel <laughs> since he'd been to the theater to see They Shall Not Grow Old, actually went to a movie theater and also saw Bohemian Rhapsody. I knew that I could just download this movie for two ninety nine and watch it. So, so I did. Seeing it in 2019 for the first time, what, what did it feel like? What's, what how does the movie hold up? I don't know. I mean, I'm, I was very impressed by the editing. J.K. Simmons' Academy Award-winning performance was great. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm. I mean, if we really want to hear my thoughts, it's just interesting given what it's about, the dynamic it's about, and how it came out in advance of really an important moment in 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 that dynamic of the abuse of power. Yeah. Um, It came out preceding it, and I'm very curious how... I don't know. I mean, I joke that it's a feature-length student film. I shouldn't I shouldn't make that joke. But some of that comes from it being... I don't find the characters, aside from J.K. Simmons' amazing performance, they don't, they don't move beyond their ideas of the world. Like, Miles Teller's character has this very, very weird view of what it means to be an artist and... and the best at something and he never really gets a chance to move on from that or explore it we never really get a chance to explore why jk simmons is the way that he is whether his technique's effective etc etc i mean i don't i don't want to start a whole thing right going off on my that's, thoughts ahead but that's of a really clip, interesting but. perspective on it which i didn't and i didn't have time to re-watch it so i'll be curious to to look at that way as well i mean i was always just fascinated by J.K. Simmons' amazing performance, the editing, mm -hmm. 
and just the feel like it's that room in particular just the it's just such an interesting space where this is taking place that um just is very iconic to me yeah it's very very strongly photographed yeah and different from the short actually i'll talk about that in a bit very cool say anything else we should say big picture about this <laughs> well i think going into this scene we've seen you know this this is this a real music school schaefer i don't know but i know that the fordham which is real yeah i know that the director is went to a music school and went through this type of experience and mm -hmm. obviously it might be over dramatized but the character Maybe. and the teacher are basically based on stuff that he's experienced yeah i don't know there's like as we've learned there's far more psychotic stuff that goes on i just felt that this is more an indication that these monsters exist and that they are accepted in the world at the time where it's kind of funny how there was a change in society of, Oh wait, these <laughs> like, we can do something about this. Yeah. We can, we can, we can push back. So we should probably say that the film is about the relationship between an ambitious jazz drumming student that character is called Andrew and an abusive instructor um, called Fletcher. And it's that, It's that new guy that is trying to find his place in the top of the line band that is competing at the highest level and a teacher that is sort of messing with him, kind of like a drill sergeant almost to see if he can, if he can stand the pressure to deserve to be in this group. Yes. And then go on to the greatness. Exactly. And it's the, the ending is pretty pretty shocking i think it's it's got a nice ruthless touch to it yes all right so what we usually do on this podcast is we watch a specific scene because we're talking about editing so we want to really look at the specifics you have the option to watch along we'll include a link in the description of this podcast and the scene that we picked is the not my tempo scene which is kind of probably if you've know anything about this film if you've ever talked about this film in film school probably this scene was brought up and it's kind of a scene that starts off it's the first time that the character andrew gets to play in the band and he's only really there to to sort of get a sneak peek he's supposed to like help the main drummer do his sheet notes for him turn the page but also gets a shot at Uh, drumming himself and this is supposed to be like a lesson that Fletcher is teaching him right off the bat to tell him who's boss in this well there's also just to set up a little bit the yeah. student what they do is they hang out in practice rooms apparently in play and, and Schaefer has heard him playing in a practice room and you don't really know in the film if this is the guy the founder of the school is is he Schaefer I, I'm not familiar enough to know if this is a real place or not so he hears this kid playing for like 10 seconds in the in the practice room establishes his dominance goes and listens again in front of everyone gives him the opportunity to come play in this more legit version of the band and then or not the band the school he shows up for it and he immediately sees a a heavyweight kid chastised and run out of the room for being for not knowing if he is in sync or out of sync or, or whatever it in is tune, so yeah. there's yeah so there's all this tension surrounding it going into it and now this is his moment to play and yeah. every time Schaefer talks to him he kind of pumps his pumps him up and then takes him down yeah and the so he just I think inspired him a little bit and now is giving him his shot yeah and then the twist was on that previous kid that he kicked out that the guy actually was in tune but he didn't he either didn't know that he was or he didn't dare to speak up and it was actually another guy in the band that was out of tune and because he didn't speak up because he didn't know uh, Fletcher decided to kick him out because if he doesn't know he doesn't deserve to be here and that's a yeah. very significant setup for what's about to happen to our character main character Andrew and um, what's going on here And I think through the entire film, J.K. Simmons never listens to people play music more than two seconds. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> all right. So with all that being said, let's take a look at the scene. We're going to describe it for you. So you don't necessarily have to watch along, but you can if you want to. And then we go back and look at some detailed editing and strategies that might have been implemented to really shape the rhythm, the pace, and reinforce the attention in this scene. And with that, Tyler, you good? 
Yeah. Here we go. In three, two, one. Okay, so we're starting on the drums. That's not really how the scene starts. We're sort of in the middle. Little trouble there. Let's pick it up at 17. And it was Andrew who's drumming, and he gets interrupted by Fletcher. Five, six, and... And he resets them, and he starts again. Listens along, and stops him again. Not, not quite my tempo. Not quite go. his tempo. There's a lot of shots that are the same composition that we're now intercutting back and forth. Stop them again. And here's the question really, if you're an expert with music, is he on cue or is he not? Mm -hmm. And we'll talk about that. Right. Not quite my tempo. It's all good. No worries. Here we go. <laughs> Stopped him again. Yeah. Fletcher still feels very supportive. Like he interrupts mm -hmm. him, but he's like, it's okay. It's fine. Here we go. Uh, mm -hmm. Ready? We're getting a little closer with the shots, but we're basically in the same sort of over-the-shoulder shots, which indicate that they're connected. Mm -hmm. Wait for my cue. Five, six, seven. He's panicking a little bit. Fletcher's kind of psyching him out. Yeah. It's nice to see a couple of band members in the background that are sort of following along. <laughs> and they seem supportive. Okay, now it seems like he's got it. Fletcher is happy, he walks away again. He was like backing into him for a while. Now he's like on the other side of the room. It seems like everything is good. Boom, he throws a chair at him and barely misses him because he ducks away. So he would have been hit and Fletcher is pissed. Yeah. Why do you suppose I just hurled a chair at your head, Neiman? And I thought there was gonna be a whole thing about I don't know. he was paying attention to Fletcher when he should have paid attention to the music or something, I don't know. Yeah, so we now have a profile shot of Andrew, which often means disconnect. Start counting. Five, six, seven. In four, damn it, look at me. And then he go, gets into his grill, Fletcher that is. One, two, three, four. <laughs> and now he hits him. Was I rushing or was I dragging? He wants him to figure out whether he's on time or not by counting him down and then hitting him. One, two, three, four. And at this point, I'm like, is he on time or is he not? I feel like he's not. If you deliberately sabotage my band, I will fuck you like a pig. I'm focused on so many other things than whether he's on time or not. Yeah. <laughs> or are you going to be on my fucking time? I'm going to be on your time. <laughs> what does that say? Quarter note equals 215. Count me at 215. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Jesus one, two, fucking three. Christ! Yeah, or is this kid awful at music? Yeah, we're, we're super <laughs> tight tempo. now. Can you even fucking read music? What is that? Eighth note? Yes, what is that? And Andrew is about to break. What are you, in a fucking acapella group? Play the goddamn kit! Now answer my question. Were you rushing or were you dragging? Super close shots, and there's a single tear. <laughs> Are you one of those single tear people? Do I look like a double fucking rainbow to you? Nothing else matters, so just the two of them. No. Mm -hmm. no, so you just don't give a shit about any of this? I do give so a shit about this. Which I almost kind of feel like is my issue with the movie. <laughs> well, sometimes it's good to be focused. I'm upset. Say it so the whole band can hear The world you. interpreting this. Oh, little cutaways I'm to upset. the other band members. Louder. They just feel awkward and kind of I'm look upset. down. Louder! I'm upset! You are a worthless, I, friendless, faggot lip little piece of shit. The camera sort of pushed in on this. It was a two shot. Still is. It's another tear. all over my drum set like a fucking nine-year-old girl. So for the final father fucking time, say it louder! I'm upset! Carl. Then he... Start practicing harder, Neiman. Moves away from him. He gets... Whiplash. Pulled off. We're now in a wide shot. He has to get away from the drum set. The other guy comes in. And that's the end of the scene here. Um, obviously, we're in the middle of a scene when we started, and the scene sort of... Still has an ending here, I assume, that we don't have here. But this is really the core of the scene where I think it's it makes sense to talk about the editing specifically. Mm -hmm. um, so before we do... One thing I yeah. saw watching this on Amazon, a piece of trivia, is that the film was shot, edited, and delivered to the Sundance uh, submission in a 10-week period. Wow. 
That's cool. I've been there. <laughs> <laughs> and I've been there both times, meaning get in and not get in. So I recommend <laughs> not doing it in a fast, in a schedule like this. And I recommend not waiting till the last minute to submit the late, late right. deadline. And though the irony is that, you know, you can still do color and sound and a lot of stuff when, once you get in, but, yeah. but you, you got to feel really good about, yeah. yeah. You, can't, you can't leave anything up to the imagination. They need to see the movie because the competition is so, so hard mm -hmm. that if you give them any excuse why this movie could possibly not be right or perfect, they'll take it and they'll program another film where they just already have fallen in love with the actors in it oh sorry yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Just> <laughs> okay um so let me ask you i don't know how much research you did up front in terms of this question but do you think that the kid was on time or was not on time especially at the beginning i, I mean i think that it is irrelevant right it, that it's all just about this character and i guess that this is a scene where you're still kind of playing with the fact that oh maybe this guy is legit and on the level but by the end of the movie and i think that's a reason the tight stuff works so well for this because it really is being interpreted from the kid's perspective of, of this experience it's very hard to wonder what this would look like in a wide shot or even there's only literally one wide shot of him performing from like the audience's pov at yeah. the end and yeah. it's just like what the hell's going like he just looks like he's being drawn and quartered you know it just it really in terms of it being a character it's it's captured perfectly for being from this character's perspective and it holds up with that because i can't imagine what you know a master shot or a wide shot would look like of him just in his face screaming with a bunch of kids with their heads down i just wonder if it would even even work or if it would just be too ludicrous just with how extreme it gets so i think it's more it might it's not, not about work. like what's real it's about what that experience is yeah it might not work because in this particular case all the white shots feel like release like you can get mm -hmm. you can catch a breath and that's what we want to avoid at these points where he's really cornering him yeah and it might also more so i think tip because i think it is like um almost a surrealist interpretation of the mentor pupil relationship mm -hmm. and seeing it in a wide shot i think would just it would just be too ridiculous just because of the way that it is it is pushed yeah. rightfully well i want to i want to answer this question about whether he's on time or not and mm -hmm. and i think it is relevant that he is and i found some he is the, he is <laughs> um i found somebody who actually put all the beats together lined them up mm -hmm. like each time he interrupts him that's a new take and he just lined them up all underneath to see how far he's off and he mm -hmm. basically is pretty much right on we're talking about like milliseconds yeah. uh, which right. another person and i saw this in a reddit thread who's a professional musician said is well within the range of what a human can do like they can't be exact exact but they can be within a certain range and it totally is on time and if you can tell that it's not on time that it's either rushing or then even regular people would be able to tell i mean normal like maybe not right. everybody but you don't have to be an expert expert necessarily to know whether somebody's rushing or not and right the way that it's cut it feels like it's intentionally cut to show for the expert or for the general audience that's just confused and wondering and trying to figure this out he actually for the very like the third of the scene is completely on time and that is important because that shows us that fletcher has other intentions than to teach him to be on time or to pay attention there's more going mm -hmm. on here with the character well the reason i said use the word irrelevant wasn't you know whether he is or isn't i just think whether he is or isn't is irrelevant in terms of what the per like what fletcher's aim is yeah That's true. Like, there's nothing Absolutely. productive or constructive about what he's doing. Yeah, no, I wouldn't. I <laughs> didn't want to tell criticize yeah. that you were using the term irrelevant. Um, no, no, I didn't take it that way. I just wanted to be clear that okay. 
to me, I'm watching my experience watching the scene. Like I don't, I'm not like, oh, I guess he like clearly the guy's belligerent. Yeah. This is to me, <laughs> this feels like he's initiating him. He's showing him, look, you have a shot to be part of this gang. I'm the boss. What I say matters. You do as I say. And if the pressure is on, I, I want you not to break. Um, mm -hmm. I, I need you to stay strong. And this is what that scene in a way is about. And then, yes, it's maybe it's, it goes over the edge. Like that person is so self-obsessed or so, um, I don't know, focused on winning that he, he misses some of the other aspects of what's a good teacher, like being able to mentor people in a way that it's constructive and healthy. And he's obviously crossing the line like a teacher that hits you in the face i mean that's <laughs> i don't think i would be i would be hanging around not because well, i'm too weak and i'd be like jesus i can't take this but because i feel like that's stepping over a line and just well, to I give think you also yeah go ahead well i mean were you, you're gonna give an example of the time yeah you got I, hit in the face yeah i was gonna give you a james cameron example. well let me Then let me, okay, so then let me, before you do that, <laughs> let me just ask this question because it feeds right into it. You, so just in your experience, like I've had a lot of really great teachers and a lot of really shitty teachers and I've had teachers not unlike this. Yeah. It, in, at the very least in, in the sense of, uh, you know, just that that's the experience of how it feels like. And also outright pieces of fucking human shit that like should not be teaching. And so I just wonder to what extent you found that like, how often is it the guy with this at like the greatest of great teachers I've had have never had this guy's attitude because I believe they have confidence in their ability and what they're conveying. Whereas everything about the way he's behaving just to me screams insecurity. And th those are the right. teachers I encounter that kind of have to resort to those totalitarian methods and put people in place etc cetera, etc cetera. it's just they don't they they're completely insecure and they they're also bringing their own baggage to the job which is unacceptable in any other profession why why would it be acceptable here yeah um, like you don't need some fucking surgeon who's operating on you, <laughs> you know, yeah. like just well, angry at his wife's divorce so he's taking it out on that tumor Do I believe um, that's the best way to teach somebody? Well, so I'm just curious what your experiences are. Yeah, of yeah. I don't think it's had the best someone way, who has that level way. of professionalism with that level of insecurity. Yeah, I, I don't think it's the best way to teach, but it's one way that can be effective. Um, I was in a somewhat situation that might compare to this: that I was on a Russian research vessel with James Cameron as he was shooting his film. A lot of pressure, and I was the onboard documentarian putting a camera in his face. And I was in a situation where he was screaming and yelling at me. And it was very tough. It took me two weeks to adjust to that. But what made the difference is that it never got personal. Like, yes, mm -hmm. I felt terrible right. for sucking. And also, it's kind of the, the feeling that I'm the one that's screwing up his film. That was like the worst mm -hmm. feeling. That like, I'm in the way of, making things great and right but it was never like uh, i'm gonna fuck you like a pig or something like that <laughs> um and that made all the difference you know i could just like get used to this take a deep breath and say you know what this is an amazing thing it's worth it just hang in there uh, it'll be right. worth it and after two weeks i was strong like i couldn't care what mm -hmm. what was the stress I was just like, yeah. whatever would happen, um, I was ready to just be focused on the job. And that works. That's great. That's what they do in the army as well. But, right. but if, <laughs> if, in that situation, if somebody hits me in the face, oh, I'm sorry, it's over. I, that's, that's where I crossed the line. But I mean, yeah. he, he would have to pay a big price, Andrew, obviously, by missing out on this opportunity. So I think that might be what's going on oh it's, it's just like heightened drama in the sense well i think there's two further. yeah but there's i think there's two sides of that one everyone has to go through what you did which is especially in the arts like learning not to take things personally yeah and now it's very easy for you to look at 
that situation and be like, okay, this is someone who it hadn't, I mean, I'm sure you made a mistake. And so it's good that you were, you know, that you were, you, you learned your lesson for not messing up the professionalism. Um, but also like in this scenario, it's funny watching it as someone who's, you know, like lived life a little more like the, <laughs> being in that kid's shoes. It's like, fuck this guy. Like you can't take that personally. This guy's clearly fucking insane. Like from from the get go, and I don't understand a single thing that he did in this film to make the kid a better musician, specifically right. at all. Like yeah. his entire claim to fame is, you know, that someone he he read that someone once threw a fucking symbol at Charlie Parker's head. And somehow is able to ignore everything else that Charlie Parker did. And it's kind of, and that's kind of maybe my more issue with it is it's very dismissive of what it, the work it really takes to develop a craft and be very good at it. And I, yeah. and I don't know, I can appreciate the movie by having an issue with it. Yeah. If that makes any sense. Whereas I don't, I don't know if it, well, you know, I, I don't know if the movie realizes that it's, it's wrong. Cause I feel like a lot of people, can kind of get into that school of thought. I think and it a has lot of shit teachers intention. are enabled to exist, especially in the acting world, yeah. you know, because of that. I think it has a different intention. I'm when when I did this, I, I'm I'm doing a video on this scene with somebody together who knows a lot more about the scene than I do. His name is Aaron, <laughs> and um, he he told me that the director really wanted to make. Fletcher a monster so even J.K. Yeah. Simmons was fighting this uh, to a certain right. degree and was saying I need to have some redeemable qualities <laughs> in this film and the director right. was like no you don't <laughs> you are a monster yeah. and so just one example for is like in the scene he says I'm gonna fuck you like a pig that he said mm. that by mistake during the short, when they shot the short one time, and J.K. Simmons refused to do the line again. And the original line was like, "I'm gonna like slaughter you like a pig or something, or like <laughs> cut you open." He had a f he had a flashback to Oz, and um, he would not do it. And there are a couple of things in this scene that are actually from from the short stolen, like lines as well as shots. <laughs> Even though the, in the short it's all daylight in a room with lights, they recolored the shots wow. and used them here. And it's just Damien had the instinct to say, "No, we're dealing with a monster here, and it's not about what he can teach; it's about that situation that sometimes you find yourself in." Yeah, and I think I mean obviously I guess we should talk a little more about the editing, but I yes. think this is good to go over considering your master class coming out and. You know, defining your approach. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's it's just that. That's exactly it. I'm doing a course yeah. on editing, and I'm going to be screaming and yelling at you during yeah. during the screen of your laptop. I just wish that I just would know more about Simmons' character if I walked out of this knowing that he had said something more than "be on the beat." And you're a piece of shit. And then, by the way, when I called you a piece of shit, that made you better. And I get all the credit for your bloody hands and all the hard work that you did. Like, he didn't give me any insights to music. Like, I don't know. I don't yeah. understand why this guy even exists as a musician. Like, yeah. does he play music? Like, And it definitely has to do with insecurities, too. Um, and going back to mm -hmm. James Cameron, th there might have been some insecurities in the moment because he's doing something that he hasn't done before, which is he... But that's a not a teacher. That's someone... But that's someone trying to keep things on track that's in... It seems like his whole modus operandi is putting himself in over his head with production budgets and moving yeah, the, fair, fair. But the I think possibilities of filmmaking forward, and I think there's a lot of stress from that, which is different than finding yourself as the dominant figure in a room full of fucking children, and ha you know, and having to scream at them because you have absolutely nothing else to to offer. I think James Cameron would be a very good teacher. Because he's just, you know, <laughs> knows so much. He would have so much to offer. He wouldn't be worried like, oh, is this kid doubting me? Well, I, be I better shit on him. No, no, um, I don't think Cameron ever thought that I doubt him or that I had any, right. like, oh, this guy doesn't know what he's doing. I think, uh, on the other hand, I don't think J.K. Simmons' intention is to teach anybody anything. I think his intent right. is to win this <laughs> fucking competition. And right. 
use anybody that's available to get him there. And that's very <laughs> similar to a filmmaker. Filmmakers are very focused on their selfish goal of um, making a film, which right. sometimes is like a not very selfish goal, but many times it's all about that filmmaker just telling their story and getting it out there and getting connection to the audience. And that's what matters. It's not about the what great relationships I have with the actors and the crew. It helps, but uh, some of the worst uh, movie experiences in terms of filming turned out to be some of the greatest films. There's no correlation between it. And Yeah. Um, but anyway... Well, the okay. good news is that yeah. not getting too deep in the editing on the podcast is fine because there's a really wonderful episode that Sven's going to be releasing all about that. <laughs> well, I do want to do some real editing here because I want to use it in the video to talk about um, this particular scene. So the one thing that I use as an exercise when I bring the scene up in class actually is to have the students um, do every cut and measure every shot, how long it is. And to start looking more closely at the pacing and the rhythm of the scene. Now, I sort of decided I'm not going to tell you what the outcome is of that exercise. I want to encourage you to do that. To, If you have time and you're an editor, just like put it in a timeline, use the blade tool, and just make a cut wherever there's a cut, and then look at the length of the shots and look at the timeline and see what's going on there. And it has to do with uh, building tension, releasing tension, and building more tension, releasing a little tension, and building it up. Um, that's, that's really interesting. The other thing I want to point out is actually the simplicity of coverage in that scene. Like, there is not a whole lot of setups to tell the story. If you start off, we have an insert of a drum, and then we have these wide shots, medium shots, and then we're basically in these over-the-shoulders for most of the time throughout the scene as he's slowly moving in, as Fletcher is slowly moving in on the student, and they become tighter and tighter and tighter. And it's not about the coverage. It's about the back and forth between those shots based on what's going on as he is repeatedly telling him to um, start over again and try again. And there's a certain flow to this that sort of starts off slow and it gets closer and closer and faster and faster. I really want to emphasize that most of the shots are over the shoulders. I talked about this. At 154, it's the first time we're cutting to this profile shot of Andrew. It's a close-up. And it's a moment of story turn. Okay, so then I want to point out the first time that we see a profile shot is really... I'm at 136. He throws the chair... Boom. Those were like wider shots where we can actually see the chair flying. And then he, he ducked down. He comes back up in the profile shot at 143. And then we have this big pause and Fletcher asks him, why did I just hurl this chair at you? I, I don't Again know. into the profile shot. The tempo? And the profile shot is just on Andrew. Fletcher is still in an over the shoulder, which is a really interesting way of cutting this scene. Why is there no profile on Fletcher, which would make them kind of equal opponents? Were you rushing or were you dragging? I, I don't know. And it's only Andrew who gets the profile shot. Start counting. Five, six, seven, In four, damn it! Look at me! I've mentioned before, to me, always reads as isolation. He's alone. He's got no one. Okay, and then the other thing that's really interesting is when we're in that passage at 2.07 and he starts hitting him, every time he hits him, we're crossing the line. Why do we cross the line? Because it sort of jars our orientation as the audience. So on one, in one shot, Fletcher is on the left, 
And then in the other shot, Fletcher is on the right. Which means we have to, as the audience, we got to refigure out the layout of the scene. Because it sort of naturally feels as if we're like, the room just turned. And mm -hmm. that, that gives us this moment of what just happened. Which helps with when somebody gets hit. It's nice to cross the line. Uh, actually, right. some people might know in, in um, the Scorsese film, Raging Bull, in the fights, he often intentionally crosses the line so that we have that disorientation on every hit, which sort of mirrors what the boxer is going through, that he's like whacked. Right, which is an obvious is. influence on um, this and film. And what does crossing the line mean? It's basically if you draw a line between two characters, like an imaginary line, the camera should always be on one side of that line so that if you intercut um, the shot of one guy and then reverse shot of the other guy, they will always end up in the right part of the frame. Like character one will always be on the left side. Character two will always be on the right side, regardless of whether you cut on them or cut away from them. And well, it's more than that. It's also the direction that they're facing. Right. Almost almost even far more than the side of the frame they're on. It's just the direction that they're facing in it. Right. It which makes we're going to be talking a lot about with our battle scenes in the coming weeks. Meaning, oh, you mean like in terms of who's on the left and who the, who's looking to the right? Yeah, it's the direction you're looking from left to right, right to left, or facing. Because culturally of course, it feels like one is weaker, one is stronger. No, it's just the the simple geometry of jk simmons is looking right to left miles teller is looking oh okay gotcha yeah absolutely. Sorry, jk simmons is looking from left to right and it does and i mean of course it helps that they stay on a certain side of the frame but that's not uh, essential to it well th so that they are looking like it looks natural that th that they're looking at each other like if you cross the frame then the audience is like is he looking away from him now right right um, right or if you broke it with say the the classmates listening it's going to look like they're facing the the back wall yeah um so but we're going to talk a lot about that with the battle battle yeah. scenes so that's we made that a really com complicated concept but intentionally crossing <laughs> the line on each hit each slap helps us be confused is is the point here and though commenters I, or listeners in your comments, please let us know if you notice the uh, line breaks in the movie Captain Marvel. There's a dialogue scene that has some very odd line breaks in it. <laughs> Sorry. So the thing I'll just say real quick about the editing of this is that because for so long I'd heard, you know, it was edited so well, it won the Academy Award. And a lot of editors I work with, teach with and stuff like that would be like, oh, the editing whiplash, it's so great. So I expected watching it something far more attention drawing and snazzy and you know just a lot of rapid cuts for the playing and stuff but no it's just really solid editing like you said it's very the shots that are you know very strong compositions this director has and they're used very sparsely but very effectively and i think that's the sign of strong filmmaking and editing but also you know the editing gets a chance to pop in this just because we're able to cut so clearly on the music cutting to simmons hands and stuff like that and the editing really added a ton of production value to this incredibly incredibly small scale film yeah i agree and i think it's uh i mean it it became such such a talk in terms of the editing is that correlation between the music and the cutting on the beat and yeah, it, they had very little actually in the scene because it's an indie film. They didn't have a lot of time to shoot the scene. And that's why the coverage in a way is very simple, but it's very effective. And the editing is what makes it work. It's creating that tension. Mm -hmm. The cutaways yes. to the uh, just uh, embarrassed other crew um, band members. Yeah, it's nice. And then saving the two-shot basically for the ending of the scene. Now we're not in these uh, repeated over-the-shoulder uh, medium shots anymore. Saving the like push-in to the end. Mm -hmm. It's great. And there's something. I mean, there's something bigger about the editing and the flow of a scene, and it applies to any scene. It's like when, as you're cutting a scene you 
you're feeling the rhythm of the scene. Like, when does it flow? When is a scene over? When should it be over? How long do you take for a reaction on an actor? When should you cut away from it? All these things, it's just like, as you're, as you're cutting, you're feeling it, and as you're doing more cutting and and sort of really training that muscle of feeling the flow of a scene, um, the more it becomes something that's like, you don't even think about it. You don't make rational choices why you're in a specific shot and how long you're in a specific shot. You just let this sort of the scene start to almost play like music. And the audience will feel that too. Like if you can really sync up the audience with the flow of the performances and the, the tension in the scene, that's when when scenes start to work. All right. Anything else you want to add to it? Yeah, no, not really. I mean, Tom Cross, the editor, won the, the Oscar for the film. He started off, that it made his career. He was mostly an assistant editor and made some music videos before that. He got lucky to just be in the right place at the right time to uh, cut the short and then it turned into a feature and it made his career. He did La La Land and uh, Joy and First Man after that. And Oh, wow. So David O. Russell brought him into the fold for Joy because he usually has like three editors working on a film. Yeah. So yeah. that's very cool. Yeah. So that's, sometimes that's how it happens. Just talented, lucky because he made his luck at the right time well talent is when luck and opportunity combine as i learned from a monstrous uh teacher once nice was it fletcher (laughs) (laughs) i I wish cool man okay that's what i had to that's why i wanted to talk about this film um i really love it for the editing for the character and for this amazing story of um an editor just sort of starting to like just explode after going from a short to a feature <laughs> career-wise yeah. and yeah if you enjoyed what you're hearing if you have thoughts about the podcast where can they make comments Sven? this guy edits.com slash comment very cool we enjoy the feedback and the interaction we enjoy suggestions for other scenes to look at coming up we're going to be looking at seven samurai we're also going to be comparing that to Hacksaw Ridge and many more to follow. So we look forward to doing those and let a friend know about the podcast, fellow filmmakers, fellow editors to check it out. Let us know your thoughts. Uh, thank you to Curta for the music. And as Sven always says, happy editing. Put your head between the speakers. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. All right. Well, sorry it took a little longer, but uh, I think it's a good one. <laughs>